Welcome to Church 213. Thanks for listening to our sermon series titled Unseasonable Fruit as we go through the fruits of the Spirit and explore biblical examples of each one for us to study how God works in us through the Spirit. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Pastor Dom Lewis. I hope he's storing up his sleep. Stockpiling that stuff like gold. You're going to be doing all that fancy dancing in about a month from now. <laughs> Amen. Welcome to the house of the Lord. The scripture says, I was glad when they said to me, let us come to the house of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I need Sunday mornings in my life. Amen. I need Sunday morning. I need to see you guys on Sunday mornings <clears throat> because um, what it does for me is it helps me walk in the spirit. I mean, it adds spiritual fortitude to my life, and uh, thank you guys for being here and making this a priority. Hopefully you picked up a sermon guide when you came in, because we're going to be all over that this morning, because I want to give you some handles to hold on to um, so that you can, um, you can sit and you can soak and you can marinate and you can go out and apply the living, breathing, sharp word of God this morning. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I don't know about you. But I need Sunday mornings in my life. Amen? I need it in my life. So that's been the theme of the last eight weeks in our series, Unseasonal Fruit. A study of God's work in us. What I've tried to do is try to explain to us that God desires to know you. So his pursuit is fresh. To God be the glory. God desires to shape us. So he's involved in our valleys. To God be the glory. God desires to chisel me and to chisel you. And sometimes that chisel is a little sharper because I need it. He is working in our making. And I don't know if I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb right here. I'm going to say a statement that may be way out in left field. But I just believe that if the Lord that I serve flung out the stars and lit them on fire, and I claim that, it should be evidenced by the way I live. I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying. I know, that, I know that's way out there. Some of you guys may say, man, I'm wrong, but I don't, I don't think I am on this one. In my most humble and accurate opinion, I don't think I'm wrong on that one. So praise God. Praise God that he loves me exactly the way I am because he's good. But also I praise him that he didn't leave me like that because he's holy. And so for us this morning... We are under the chisel of the word because he loves us and he's gentle to us. And he brings us into community like this so that he can light us on fire, fling us out so we can live life according to his good purposes. So if you have your copy of God's word, we're going to go right to where we've been the last eight weeks, which is going to be Galatians chapter 5. We are made to love the master. Amen. Galatians 5. Hey, if you're willing and able, let's stand together there. Galatians 5. We are made to love the Master. Galatians 5, starting in verse 13. It's the Word of God for the people of God. Y'all ready? Me too. Me too. 
Verse 13 says this. For you recalled to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, you'll be consumed by one another. I say then, walk by the Spirit, you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you against these things, as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom. The idea there is you're intentionally working toward a goal. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness gentleness and self-control the law is not against such things now those who belong to christ jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires so if we live by the spirit let us also keep in step with the spirit let us not become conceited provoking one another or envying one another church what a beautiful picture of the community that god is building and chiseling right here in our midst amen we're a part of something magnificent You guys can be seated. Magnificent people, by the grace of God, we are made to serve and love the Master. So here's what's going on. What we've already established is Paul is the the great church planner, the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he's challenging the believers in Galatia to this cause and effect principle. For every effect, there is a cause. Why is there something rather than nothing? Because there's a cause. Amen? Cause God. And so what Paul is doing is he's, 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 he's teaching these New Testament believers in this area that, it, that if God is at work in his children, the fruits are going to be obviously different than the desires of the flesh because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. See, the rules of the Old Testament law existed for the purpose of restraining the flesh. But as the Spirit flows through our lives, what this is saying is there's nothing to restrain. Let it loose. Amen? And so what I've been trying to do, and this is on the back of your sermon guide, are there some tangibles, some things that you can say, okay, if if the Spirit of God is working in my life, and I don't no longer live under the restraint of the Old Testament to maintain my flesh toward holiness, if the Spirit now is filling that role, what does that actually look like if I'm working through the fruit of the Spirit? Think about it like like different layers of of a fruit. It's not different fruits. It's one fruit. It's one essence made up of co-equal parts similar to the Trinity of God. I love the connection there. 
And so if you look on the back of your sermon guide, what we've done over the last few weeks, and you can go back and catch these on all of the listening platforms if you missed one. But I've been working through what each fruit of the Spirit looks like. So what is love? And I've said it before, I'll say it again. How in the world can I love my family with every fiber of my being and a really good cheeseburger? We've missed the mark when it comes to love. Amen? What is biblical love? Well, true love is the sacrifice for others for God's glory at the, exp- at the expense of personal comfort. So what is joy? Joy is triumphant praise even through life's darkest moments. See, these are things that only God in you can do. What is true peace? True peace is inner calm today despite tomorrow's unknowns. Who knows what tomorrow's going to hold? But God holds it. That is peace. What is kindness? Kindness is the favor of God in action the harmony between believers when we are kind to one another man there is power in our unity right i like to say this i like to say that doctrine is our bedrock at 213 unity is our glue purity is our power and jesus is the only show in town baby that's who we are as a community of believers at church 213 how does that roll in to goodness then true goodness is Christians' God-given desire to go in the right direction. True faithfulness from last week is consistency to good works that inspires others to admire the wonder of God. We talked about the old faithful out in Yellowstone. And so through the progression, we know that this morning we're talking about gentleness. Gentleness. What is biblical gentleness? Well, if God is pursuing you and I in a fresh way, And I hope that you're prepared for that this morning. God is ready to meet us in this place. Amen? If God is pursuing us and he's shaping us through what we go through in different seasons, because we are are all seasonal people. If he's chiseling on us in every challenge and he's active in making us more aware of who we are and who he is, how does gentleness play a part in that? I know that you got it this morning with that on your mind. Pastor, what is that answer to that question? That is a good question. Here it is. Write this, write this down, you guys. Here's true gentleness. True gentleness is humble restraint for the glory of God. True gentleness is humble restraint for the glory of God. What I hope you realize is the world would define these things erroneously. It'll, it'll mischaracterize what love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, good. It'll, it'll, it will redefine these things. The issue with that is the culture cannot correctly define something that it never defined in the first place. Once God defines something, that is what is true, right? And any time as a culture we try to redefine something, we always mess it up. And so what we have to do is biblically understand what are these things if God is actually going to work in those things through us and gentleness is there. So if we want to know what gentleness is really about, it's defined here because the character of God, as Pastor Dom has already said, is gentle. The word for gentleness 
that Paul uses is better understood in the original language as meekness. Some of your translations might, might actually even say meekness. That's the better translation of the Greek word. The word implies a temperament of humility for a greater good. A temperament of humility. Pastor Dom told me this week that he's probably the most humble person he knows. <laughs> that's a joke. He didn't tell me that. The point is, that's, it's, it's a, it's an, meekness is an idea of just of just a temperament of humility, meaning you hold back something greater so that something else is brought forth. You, you, you're, holding, you're holding something back so something greater can be brought forward. When you think about meekness, I don't want you to think about weakness because meekness is not weakness. See, gentleness is something that I can do but choose not to for the sake of something greater. Let me illustrate this for you. If you go to a petting zoo and you take your toddler and you bring the toddler up and there's some little baby chicks and you place the baby chicks in the hand of a toddler, a parent may say something like this, be gentle. You see? It's a, it's a temperament of humility. It means I'm holding back. I'm holding back something for the greater good. And that is a type of work in you that only God can do. That you would hold back, that you would, you would be restrained in order for something better to be put forward. It leads to a humble nature in the moment for a greater good. That's temperament. When you think about temperament, that's your nature. It's how you act, it's what you do, it's how you respond, it's, it's how you react. It's, it's really what you're known for. We know this in our animals. Animals have different temperaments. You know, you roll up, when you know, you make visitation, you go make a visit, the dog comes running out, showing his teeth. I like to ask the question, does your dog bite? No. The question that I like to know is, do, does he know that he doesn't bite? <laughs> because they'll always say, ah, he's never, he won't bite you. Has he ever bit anybody before? Because this is a new day. And so, you know, we try to figure out the temperament of the animal. We all have a temperament. It's what we're known for. So at the moment of faith in the Lordship of Christ, God begins a new work in a person. The temperament begins to, to be prompted by the Spirit, and, and our old way of acting and reacting is now under a new authority. We've been born, what? Again. It's a new nature. So the question is, are you gentle? Humble restraint. For the glory. Are you known as a gentle person? Are you known if someone would were to, to ask a coworker, is so and so gentle, humble, restraint? What would they say? What would your husband say? What would your wife say? What would your kids say? In the car with the kids. Is my dad a gentle driver? Yes! See, the word meek from the original language was used, uh, uh, was, was used as, as a way to describe how you would rein a stallion, how you would train it. It's the idea of a horse being controlled by a bit and a bridle. Think about gentleness like this. It's a picture of, of the wild stallion that wants its independence. See, it doesn't want to be ridden. It thinks it understands freedom, so it doesn't want to be told what to do. Now, that horse 
still wants the cowboy to feed it. It still wants the cowboy to bring it in and keep it dry, right? It still wants to, to, to have things provided. It just doesn't want anybody to get on its back. Give me what I want, but don't ask me for allegiance. Are y'all picking up what I'm putting down? Wow. That, that could be a, a, a really a picture of our culture, right? But the cowboy understands the value of gentleness. So what does that cowboy do? He gets on his back. That horse will kick. That horse will, will buck. You know, that, that horse will do all the kind of things that, that Alexanders are used to back there. You know, they, 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 they got all of it down. It tries everything it can to throw the cowboy off, but the cowboy refuses to stop trying to break the horse until it yields. But how do you know that the cowboy has accomplished the goal? The horse is gentle. But catch this now. That doesn't mean the horse has lost its strength. It's still as strong as, as, as it's ever been, right? It doesn't mean that that horse has a new nature. It's still, uh, it's still a horse. It doesn't mean it's lost its God-given identity. What the difference is, is the horse is now choosing to submit to authority by refusing to do what it used to do. It just means now it's a horse under somebody else's control. That's meekness. It's power under control. It's humble restraint for the glory of God. It's, it's ability restrained by humility. It's saying this. It's saying, it's, it's saying I, I, I should, but I'm not. That's tough to do, isn't it? It's having an attitude of, oh, I could. Oh, oh, I oughta. But I won't. Because God's working through my restraint, not how my flesh wants to naturally act. That is something only God can do in me and in you. See, we can't be gentle people without the working of God because the flesh is an unrestrained maniac. It has to be a work of God in us. Look at verse 16 and 17. It says this. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh because they can't exist on a co-equal plane. In verse 17, For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. What Paul is saying to the Galatians is, if, if they were going to be Christian examples in the culture, they had to be known for gentleness because gentleness is power restrained for the glory of God. It was counter-cultural. I'm going to try to flush this out for you. The idea is restraint. Get, get that word in your head, restraint. See, in the Old Testament, the law set these fixed boundaries because what God was doing is he was calling a people to himself. He was calling them. He was cleaning a people. He was preparing a people so that he could unveil himself to the world. He was preparing a canvas. You see what I'm saying? And so what had to be included in this preparing of the canvas, canvas in the clay for the world, is restraint. He had to redefine freedom because they couldn't do what they used to do. 
because they were about a different purpose. It was love and it was freedom that led to the restraint. It was a gentleness. See, when God called Abraham, he was a moon worshiper. He was a pagan, worshiping all of the different gods there. But God called him out of that false freedom fog and he forsake that life in exchange for an exclusive life for Yahweh. He didn't know where he was going, but he knew who he was living for. And he said, let's roll. And God began to use Abraham, the father of many nations, to, to create the canvas to which while we are sitting right here today, because one man said, I'm going to honor God and I'm just going to be obedient. And what did God do? He brought restraint because it's in restraint that freedom is actually found. God had, to, God had to fence the Israelites in to keep them from making a mess of their calling. But we're on this side of the empty tomb, to God be glory. Amen? The tomb is empty. And here's how that applies. Christ has fulfilled the purpose of the law in calling and cleansing all men to himself. Now that happens through the Spirit of God, who is alive because the tomb is empty. But the idea is the same. It's the same as the Old Testament. And it's the same as New Testament, that, that freedom actually comes from submission to God in all things. Y'all, freedom is found in submission to the restraints of the Spirit because He's creating in us to be a canvas and a clay. Because the flesh is an uncontrolled, unmanageable maniac. Dostoevsky said it like this, if there is no God, everything is permitted. Just think about America for a minute. Where there is no God, everything is permitted. That's where we are. The problem is, T.S. Eliot said, if Christianity goes, the whole of our culture goes. The two work hand in hand. Restraint. For the glory of God. Restraint for freedom. And that is spot on. You guys write this down. True freedom is found in faith. Because without it there is no restraint. And without restraint communities come apart at the seams. And we're, we're walking right there. I see families walking right there. I see schools walking right there. Where they're... True freedom is found in faith because without it, there's no restraint. And without restraint, communities come apart at the seams. See, if you look at other systems of government around the world through the ages of history, in order to maintain power and leverage, the first place of main attack is faith. If you can destroy faith, then everything else becomes chaos, which requires a power to step in. To maintain leverage. That's where we are. So as a church, on 1675 Highway 213, we have to be people of faithful, humble restraint so that we aren't manipulated, being pushed around by the winds and the waves of the culture. We have to be gentle people because the gospel matters. So what I'm saying is gentleness matters, mom and dad. It matters in the grocery store. It matters in the classroom. It matters in my house. It matters in this house. 
Gentleness matters. Gentleness matters because it leaves margin for the glory of God. It leaves margin. It leaves margin for God to work. God works in the restraint. Man, that is so good for me. God works in the restraint. Look, look at verse 13 and 14. Verse 13 says this. For you are called to be free brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what I found. What I found is, is the moments where I feel like the Spirit of God is working freely around me are the times that I've restrained my flesh. That's when I sense the presence of God. But there's a war going on. Romans 7, Paul says that, why in the world do I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I need to do? Because they're opposed to one another. But it's in those times that I've, it's been those, it's in those times that I've held back what I could have said and what I should have said and what I could have done and what I should have done, but I didn't, that I felt my walk with the Lord take a, a, a step up. I got a letter grade, Okay. I'm a Georgia grad, C's to get degrees, okay, you know what I'm saying? If I want to take a letter grade in my walk with Christ, it's humble restraint so that I create margin for God to work in my life. So you can't walk in step with God without restraint, especially gentleness. Without restraint, oh man, you've lost it. And so what I want to do is give you some handles, some, some reasons that gentleness will manifest itself in the life of a believer. If you're walking in step with the Spirit, gentleness will manifest itself. It'll, it'll come out. You'll be a gentle person. You'll be meek, humble restraint for the glory of God. So here's some things. First thing, write this down. The reason that the Spirit of God creates gentleness in you, meekness, is because it sets the example of Jesus. I mean, that, that's the purpose. That's the purpose of the fruit of the Spirit. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three co-equal parts made up of one essence. They all work together. And so if the Spirit of God is working in us, it's to make us more like the Son of God for the glory of God. It's, you see how it all works together? So why in the world would the Spirit of God work in us for gentleness? Why are we called to be gentle at work? Why does the work of God cause us to be gentle at home? Grocery store line, pickup line, at home, at your house, in this house. It's because it's the example of Christ. We see it. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. It says this. Household slaves, submit to your master with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor. For it brings favor if because of the consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer if you endure it, this brings favor with God. This isn't advocating abuse. Okay, that, that's not the context here. What it's saying is humble restraint.
for the glory of God produces margin for God to work. Verse 21, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered. Also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Man, that's powerful there. Here's what that tells me is that tells me is this. I don't have to necessarily defend myself when I feel like I've been wrong for the gospel. God can handle that. So that's not on me, that's on you. I'm going to back away in silence. And I'm going to say, Jesus loves you, but I'm still trying. And I'm going to ease back. And I'm going to know that, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And He is working, and He sees, and He can right wrongs in ways that I don't have to lose or compromise my testimony by facing things that are out of my control without acting out of control. I can have gentleness knowing that God sees my heart, and He also sees the wrong, and it's on them not necessarily on me. That's what Peter is trying to explain to these Christians who were on the run. They were being persecuted. They were being flushed out of Jerusalem. They were running for their lives. He's saying, as you run for your life, be like Jesus. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But you have now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. Man, that is so rich. You guys know one of the least admired character qualities in America is meekness. Isn't it? It's hard to find someone that's meek. Not weak. Meek. And yet the greatest most powerful, influential person who ever sucked air on this planet was humble and meek. Was the, was the meekest human to ever represent us. And that's Jesus. It characterized him. Everywhere you see in the New Testament through the Gospels, you see Jesus not as weak, but as meek. Y'all see it? I mean, all authority had been given to him. But for the sake of something greater, what, we, what do we see? We see him living a life of restraint. We don't see Christ snapping. We don't see Christ venting. We don't see Christ flying off the handle. It was, a, it was, a, it was righteousness. It was meekness. And then when his time of suffering came, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, and he endured what? Hatred, strife, obscurity, nakedness, humiliation. To the very end. See, the Persians would use crucifixion for the elite to make an example of political of, of political influence. But when the Romans came along, they used crucifixion not for the elite of political society, but for criminals. Because they understood that the way you can gain control and humiliate a culture is through crucifixion of the cross. It was the most torturous, the most humiliating thing that you could ever imagine. And yet, it was right there that we see the meekness of Jesus. It was just right there for me and for you.
Look at verse 23 of, 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 um, of 1 Peter chapter 2. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. If you go back to the Beatitudes, what we see is Jesus says, happy are the meek. Blessed, happy are the meek. The ones that have the hand and the favor of God are the ones that are meek. He's laying that out on the Sermon on the Mount. But we don't celebrate meekness in our culture. What do we actually celebrate? Assertiveness, right? We have phrases like, this is a dog-eat-dog what? World, right? If you can't run with the big dogs, stay on the porch. You either need to fish or cut bait. You know, we have all of these, all these idioms in our, in our language. You know, if you're not first, you're last. <laughs> what really we're doing is, is we're just repeating, we're repeating what our culture says is important, which is completely unbiblical in, in, many, in most ways. We celebrate getting things from other people, sometimes even taking advantage of other people. The question that, that I was asking going through this was, When's the last time that I saw a movie that celebrated the virtue of meekness? You know? Like, when, when, is the, when is the last time the best part of the movie was when the good guy who was wronged didn't take revenge? That's not in there because that doesn't sell tickets. It's not profitable. It's not profitable because we don't go to a movie like that because we think it's boring. Why would a movie like that be boring? Because it doesn't entertain the flesh. That's not what our culture thinks is important. But man, how different does the Bible show us that we should live? In God's economy, where is Luke? Luke's not here. In God's economy, Walker, you remember? What is it? The math is different. See, in God's economy, the math is just different. You know, the, the, way that, the way that God's kingdom is setting itself up, it looks completely different because it doesn't operate on a different plane. God is writing a different story, completely different story. Weakness isn't meekness. We aren't to be weak. We're to be fighters. The difference is our weapons are just not of this world. The way that we fight our battles is right here. This is how we fight our battle. This is, how, this is how a believer is to maintain leverage and power and glory in the culture as salt and light. If you want to make an impact, the, this is the instruction manual right here. This is it. And what we see is the Bible celebrates meekness because I want you to listen to this. Walking in true freedom comes when we humble ourselves under a new authority because that's what Christ did. Look at verse 24. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sin, a new authority, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. By his stripes, we have been healed. That's just a prophetic word back to Isaiah 53. What have we been healed from? from being controlled by the desires of the flesh so that we can actually walk in the freedom and the purity of God. Jesus 
is our clearest, purest example of gentleness. And this is what it says in the New Testament. Last is first. We're in America. How in the world does that make sense? Giving is actually receiving. How does that make sense? Dying is actually living. Losing is actually finding. The least is actually the greatest. In God's economy, the math is just different. You see? There's no way we're going to influence the world around us by playing by the same set of rules. God is writing a completely different story in our lives. And it includes gentleness. Meekness is strength. Meekness is actually strength. It takes a lot of strength. Y'all with me? It takes a lot of strength to be gentle, doesn't it? What you want to do is just... But you can't. You want to say, I pity a fool. I dare you. Take one more step. I dare you. Say it again. Say it again. I dare you. But no, what is strength that God works? It, it works through meekness. It works through, it's, it's humble restraint. Last is first. Giving is receiving. Dying is living. Losing is finding. The least is the greatest. The idea is that we're living by the example of Jesus, not by what our culture says makes us strong. If you want to be known as a, as a leader, this is it. If you want to be known as an influencer, this is it. You don't need Instagram or Twittergram for that. You can influence the culture by just simply being led by the fruit of the Spirit. That will catch people's eye. If you want to draw a crowd, live like Jesus, because Jesus always drew a crowd. Let me give you another example, another reason that gentleness will manifest itself, and it's this. The Spirit of God working in us produces meekness because it puts the attention back on God's grace. Back on God's grace. True gentleness is humble restraint for the glory of God. Humble restraint, that's what Jesus did for the glory of God. See, when we don't bring our attention to ourselves, we leave margin for God to be praised. We're called to be meek people for the master. And, I, and a lot of us do. We want to live out loud. We want to give God the praise. But many times we can't raise our hands in praise because we're too busy patting ourselves on the back. You know? You ever heard the expression, don't throw your elbow out while you're trying to pat yourself on the back? That is not the way God's economy works. Scripture gives us principles. Principles found in Proverbs 27, 1 and 2. It says this, Proverbs 27. There we go. Don't boast about tomorrow. For you don't know what a day might bring. Amen? Let another praise you. Not your own mouth. A stranger, not your own lips. See, this defines someone that's, that's meek, kind, and gentle. What the Bible is telling us is give somebody else a chance 
to give you praise for what God's doing in your life. Give others a chance to praise God for what he's doing around you. Listen, you can relax. It's, it's okay that you don't, get, you don't get the accolades. It's okay if something you do goes unnoticed because who are you really doing it for anyway? It's okay. Just simply, consistently honor the Lord and let it land where it may. I mean, the reality is if you're upset that no one notices what you're doing and the way you're doing it, it's, it's probably being done for the wrong reasons anyway. And God's not going to give you a platform. I saw a picture of a guy serving at a homeless shelter with an Instagram handle on his shirt. Wow. And why are you doing this? To try to, you know, try to, 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 try to increase the, the viewership? Gentleness. You know what it does? It gives room for God to be praised. That's what gentleness does. And so my challenge is before you post it, before we share it, before you tweet it, pray about it. Why am I doing this? Do I need this for me? Or do I need, really need it at all? Why, why am I doing this? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 12 through 18 says, For we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. This is Paul talking. He's like, hey, we're doing some pretty doggone good stuff for the kingdom. But we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend them. But in, but in measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves to themselves, they lack understanding. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but according to the measure of the area of ministry that God has assigned to us, which reaches even you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we have not reached you. Man, you know people that just really try to oversell themselves? Overreaching, like, that is a stretch right there. Paul's like, we're not going to do that. We could, but we're not. Since we have come to you with the gospel of Christ, we are not boasting beyond measure about other people's labors. On the contrary, we have the hope that as your faith increases, our area of ministry will be greatly enlarged. Man, you see the heart of Paul here? He's putting other people first. He's bragging on them. He's like, as God works in you, I'm not worried about getting the credit because I know that it's God's credit that is due. And as that, as that water rises, it lifts us all. Let me tell you, when God is working in your life, if God works in this section, in this week, it will naturally raise the glory of God in this section. Nobody over here has to be like, look at me, look at me. Look what God is doing. It's going to work its way. It's what Paul is saying. It's working its way through so that we may preach the gospel to the regions beyond you without boasting about what has already been done in someone else's ministry. So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. It says, so whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever, however you do you, right? He said, whatever that looks like tomorrow for you, do it from the heart. That's something done for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that you receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord 
Christ. One of the things that gets under my skin is uh, it's when I'm watching college football and I see a D lineman make a tackle. And what those D linemen do is, is they run into the backfield so they can get all the attention. That bugs me. You see these big 300-pound linemen, they, it's all they can do to even get up. But they want to run to the backfield and they want to do all this fanfare because you know what? The camera always zooms in, Right? There always zooms into them. And what gets me is these guys in the trenches, I get it, they don't get the number called very often, but that is their job. Stop the ball. That's why they're recruited. That's why coaches sit in the, in the, in the living room of their parents as a junior and a senior to say, hey, we need you to come to our school and we need you to do one job. Stop the ball. That's what they're supposed to do. So why do they act like they've done something incredible when they actually do what they've been recruited to do? You know? That's why their family was given a Cadillac under the table. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Come to my school and do this job. I think they ought to put them on TV if they don't make the tackle. Zoom into them then, right? That's what they're supposed to do. And the reason it gets under my skin for me is when I see a player's doing that, I see the pride, and I see the conceit. And what it does is it washes away the effort of the whole team. What you don't see is this. When a guy makes a play and makes it all about himself, he's making the tackle only because the teammate next to him just did his job. Y'all with me? It's a team effort. And the right block was made because the linebacker got the right blocking scheme. The linebacker called in the right blocking scheme because the linebacker's coach signaled it in from the sidelines after getting the formation from the, the defensive coordinator who got some tip from a grad assistant's notes who'd been laboring in the film room all week staying awake because of the coffee that his wife sent in a thermos that he got for Christmas from his parents. <laughs> and the whole chain of events from the thermos to the tackle was nothing but the grace of God over that guy's life that just made a simple tackle and doing his job. Man, how does that translate into us and our lives? We do one little thing, the glory of God. We take one meal and we turn it. Say, man, I need, I need, I need attention here. That's not meekness. See, anytime there's a denial of the flesh to bring attention to yourself, what it does is it leaves margin for greater praise. It pleases the Father in heaven who sees, honors, and is willing to give credit where credit is due in due time and in due season. The Bible is clear that we are not to lift up ourselves God's going to do it so that he gets the credit and he gets the glory. And so our gentleness, what does it do? It simply does this. It gives God's grace a higher platform. When we're meek, humble restraint, we give credit where credit is due and we live out the life of Jesus as described in the, in the text. Take your Bibles, go to Matthew as we close out. Matthew 26. 
Matthew 26, starting in verse 47. Matthew 26, 47 says, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priests and elders of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign. The one I kiss, he's the one arrested And so immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Verse 50, Friend, Jesus asked him, Why have you come? Then they came up, they took hold of Jesus, and they arrested him. And at that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand, drew a sword. Why was a fisherman holding a sword? I don't know. He struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think I cannot call on my Father and He will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? This is humble restraint for the glory of God. Jesus goes on and says, How then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple. You didn't arrest me. But all this has happened so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. See, Jesus is saying that the meek are the ones that will inherit the earth. That's not what was going on in Roman culture. Romans said we have to act like us. You have to exert power. You have to exert will in order to receive the earth. Jesus is sitting with a group of people right on the banks of the shores of Galilee. Ordinary people. This is a world that that didn't really understand meekness. This Roman world understood power. This was a world that that was ruled by Caesar in the streets and by religious elites in the seats. And in Jesus' time, these are the people that would inherit the earth. Jesus comes on the scene, and and I'm convinced that those that will inherit the earth will be those stories of those people that we never hear about on earth. And I look forward to the moment that I I serve my king in heaven. I'm not going to be sitting on some cloud with a harp. That is not biblical. We are giving tasks and passions and talents and responsibilities here. And we're going to be able to use those in our nature, redeemed for the glory of God, to serve God in His kingdom forever. Amen? 
We're going to be doing that right beside people that who inherited the earth according to God's economy that we never hear about, that never posted about. Saints of old who were burned at the stake, who died of starvation in a cave somewhere, who were sacrificed and killed smuggling the word of God, who simply stood faithfully, consistently, and bloomed where God had planted them. See, you never know the end of the story until you get to it, right? And I'm here to tell you that meekness will take you all the way to the end of the story. Where you stand before the Lord and he says this, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come on in. Meekness will take us there. That's what will turn our world right side up. So what do we want to be known for here at this Baptist community out in the middle of East Newton? Just a gentle people. Because we understand that every breath we have is borrowed. Do this with me. Bow your head if you don't mind. Bow your heads and, and um, I just want to simply give you a couple of things to think about in way of invitation. How's your meekness? How's your gentleness? How's your humility? Say, Pastor, I, I need to I need to give God the glory from each breath that God's letting me borrow and just simply want to Praise Him for borrowed breath. Anybody be willing to raise your hand and say, Pastor, I just want to thank the Lord for borrowed breath this morning. Hands all around. God, thank you for borrowed breath. How's your meekness for the Master? Hey, just so I can pray for you, anybody say, Pastor, you pray for me that I need to work on my meekness. I am not as gentle as I need to be. Hands all around. Praise God for you guys. Maybe you've made something about you that's taken the light off the Lord. You want to simply ask for forgiveness this morning from the, from the Lord of heaven who gives you that borrowed breath. Say, God, forgive me for making it all about me. I realize it's really all about you, God. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, church. Pride comes before destruction. An arrogant spirit before a fall. I think this is the most important question of the morning. And it's simply... Have you humbled yourself before the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior? And if not, why not today? Why not today for the first time simply say, Lord, thank you for borrowed breath. I've been selfish with it. And I want to honor you and I want to accept you as Savior and I want to follow you as the Lord of my life in baptism and so that you can begin getting the glory once and for all, directly for my life.
if that's your heart's desire this morning, I'm going to be standing right here in just a few minutes. And I invite you to simply step out in boldness, yet in humility. with, With humility, submit yourself to the Spirit of God on your life. And let's have a conversation about how to know without a shadow of a doubt that your security is rooted in the blood of the Lamb. And so I simply ask you this morning to to do what the Spirit is calling you to do. If it's in a place of praise in this altar, by all means it's open. If it's in a place of, of humble praise for borrowed breath and you want to thank Him right here or in your seat, what are you going to do with Jesus this morning? God, we thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, you could have indeed called down legions of angels. That's thousands. Because all authority was given to your son, Lord. Father, he submitted himself to your will, and I ask you that we would do the same this morning. We will be people of humble restraint so that you get the glory from our lives. And Lord, when we mess up, and we will, God, that you would so pierce us and call us, sharpen us, chisel us, convict us, draw us back to a place to where we can be used as your vessel in purity again. God, thank you, Lord, for the example of your Son over our lives. God, thank you for working in us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys, let's stand together. Pastor Dom, the team, going to make a joyful noise. What are you going to do with the Spirit of God in your life?